Hi, this is Everything Else, the FT's Culture Podcast. I'm Al. And I'm Grizz. This week we'll be discussing sleep and why we sleep, a new book by the neuroscientist Matthew Walker and the journalist Harriet Fitch-Little. And later on, Grizz will chat to Chris Krauss, writer, filmmaker and author of cult feminist novel I Love Dick. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Are you an insomniac or an excellent sleeper? Have you read I Love Dick? Come and chat to us at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash everything else podcast. Hi, Grizz. How's your week been? Hi, Al. My week has been quite a fun week. I actually have ventured into the world of food and drink over... In- Congratulations. And I went to a gin education masterclass Very good. at the Hoban Dining Room's gin bar. And did you drink a lot of gin? I drank a lot of gin. Did you get wasted? I got quite drunk. I would highly recommend it. It's on Saturday afternoons. People you were can working. go along. It was research. It was, it was very much research. What they didn't tell us before was have something to eat. While I would recommend listeners to hop along to the gin bar, I would also say lie in your stomach first. It is very interesting, though. I learned some interesting little tidbits about Hoban in London, particularly its relationship to gin and all the kind of secret gin bars and distilleries that were around. Hogarth. Exactly. Hogarth, Gin Lane and all the kind of, um, you know, mother's ruin gin was called and Hogarth depicted the kind of debauchery that, that that was about. So when gin was outlawed in the 18th century, because it was mother's ruin, it was causing such social problems, you could find gin, you'd walk around these little alleys and you'd be going pss, 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 like a cat. Wow. <laughs> or meow. And if you heard someone meowing back to you from the, from the dark corners of the alley, yeah. that meant there was gin available. And it all started because there was this statue of a tomcat. And I think you had to put a penny in the tomcat's mouth and out of its paw or tail, I can't remember which, some gin would come. So you'd put your sort of tankard underneath the tail and and some gin would come out. It was like a sort of early vending machine for gin. <laughs> so, yeah, that's where tomcat gin comes from. Wow. Well, that's very good. I did manage to line my stomach this week in, in an equally debauched way, I have to say. Alain Ducasse, who as you know, is um, one of the great chefs in the world. Mm -hmm. He has a triple Michelin-starred restaurant in the Dorchester Hotel, Mm -hmm. just off Hyde Park. I was invited along to the 10th anniversary of him being there and served the most obscene canapes I've ever seen in my life. Triple Michelin-starred What does an obscene canapé look like? Well, it looks like a work of art for a start. (laughs) It was a mixture of sort of sea bass, ceviche, foie gras, Lobsters. Actually, I ate more lobster even than I ate at breakfast the previous Sunday. It was an astonishing event. This podcast has become quite lobster-themed. Yes, it was an astonishing event. It was was the kind of scene that caused the Russian Revolution. On the flip side of all of that, Mm -hmm. the main event for me this week is that I've developed a really acute insomnia. But anyway, help is at hand. I closed my eyes, drew back the curtain to see for certain. Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat, one of my all-time favourite tapes for playing in the car on long journeys. So the clocks went back on Sunday. I had a nice lie-in. I don't know about you. I did. And we've been thinking and talking about sleep recently. I spoke to the sleep scientist, Matthew Walker, this week, who's based in the US. And we're going to play that phone interview. And then we're going to speak to the journalist, Harriet Fitch-Little, in the studio. 
But before that, I gather that generally you're not a great sleeper. I'm not a great sleeper, no. I've never been a very good sleeper. Do you know why that might be the case? It's just genuinely neurotic well, and yeah. sleepless. Yeah, that's I think I'm I'm the same. I don't think I'm I don't think I'm a full-blown insomniac. No. And I think mainly it's to do with stress, isn't it? It's to do with stress and I think it's to do probably with not switching off during the day so that as soon as you lay your head on the pillow, all of your kind of thoughts and worries just, you know, start kind of whirring. Mm-hmm. I mean, my theory, and we can we can talk to Harriet about this later, but my theory is that we've got to a stage where we're overthinking sleep as a culture and it's become a sort of fanatical kind of madness. I went to a sleep conference mm-hmm. last year. During one of the presentations, the speaker, who was a psychotherapist, asked the audience who slept badly. And most of them put their hands up. And the speaker asked them how they cope with this. And they said various things, like they made the room completely dark and they got the perfect temperature and they got the perfect pillow and the perfect bed and they didn't look at their phones just before they went to bed and they didn't watch the TV and they meditated and they had a bath Mm -hmm. and they did a gazillion different things. And still, surprisingly, didn't sleep at all. And then asked if anyone in the room did actually sleep well and one brave man put his hand up and she asked him, what do you do? And he just said, I I just go to sleep. Like it doesn't do anything. Just get into bed and goes to sleep. That's the utopia. That's the dream, isn't it? That is the dream you want. And I think that guy's clearly not overthinking it. That maybe he's the solution. Maybe he's got the answers. Yeah. And th- there's also an idea that came up that our bodies just know how much sleep we need. So if we're lying awake, worrying about having to record another grueling podcast, <laughs> that maybe it's fine. Maybe we're our bodies don't need so much sleep. No, I don't know about that. Okay. Before we go into your chat with Matthew Walker, I have a little quiz for you. Okay. I'm going to mention some various famous people, and I want you just to say whether you thought they were good or are a good or bad sleeper. Okay. You can get points for this. Okay, great. Um, Okay, so let's start off with the Duke of Wellington. I'm going to say good sleeper. He was a great sleeper. He was such a good sleeper that he would take a little nap before a battle. He thought the most absurd thing in the whole world was to lie awake at night with his eyes open. So that's good, so that's one point. Lucky him. You get half a point for these next two, if you get them right. Sleeping Beauty and Snow White. Sleeping Beauty, excellent sleeper. Cracking, famously. Snow White. I don't really remember her story. I'm going to say not a good sleeper. Well, I'm afraid you only get half a point there, because I think famously Snow White actually had a pretty big kip as well. Oh, right. Albert (laughs) Einstein. Ooh, um, I think bad sleeper. That's zero points. Right. He was an amazing sleeper. He was a 10-hour-a-night guy. He he was an evangelical sleeper. Leonardo da Vinci, another genius. Clever people seem to sleep a lot, so I'm going to say good sleeper. You'd be wrong. Um, He used to have tiny little naps. He's considered to be the godfather or a godfather of the Uberman sleep. So sort of 20 minutes on and then then paint or invent something for sort of the best part of two hours and then have another 20 minute kip other people have tried this and collapsed turns out it doesn't work yeah mariah carey (laughs) did not see that one coming she sold bazillion records i think i know this she sleeps a lot okay that's that's a point you get a bonus point if you tell me grudgingly given thanks how much does she sleep oh it's probably like 10 hours 11 hours i think she's someone who sleeps a lot 15 hours no 15 hours well is that even possible what you doubt, Mariah Carey, she sleeps 15 <laughs> hours, not only 15 hours, she sleeps, allegedly, with 20 humidifiers around her bed. Maybe wow. that's why 
Yeah, maybe there's something in the humidifier. Going back to someone equally great but a little older, Emily Bronte. Oh, I reckon she was quite sort of tortured and troubled, so I'm going to say not a good sleeper. Insomniac. Correct. For an extra point, how did she try and cope with her insomnia? I'm not going to say warm baths and chamomile tea because I think she probably did something more radical than that. It was slightly radical. She just walked round and round in circles, which, you know, maybe if she'd gone to bed, um, that would have helped. Charles Dickens, good sleeper? Yeah, I think he'd be a good sleeper. Terrible sleeper. (gasps) Had to have his bed facing north, wherever he went. He went around with a compass for that. Otherwise, he was taking sort of midnight rambles across London. Mrs. Thatcher, personal hero of yours? (laughs) <laughs> Not a personal hero of mine, and famously could sleep only four hours a night and still function. Well, I think the functioning is debatable. She certainly famously did only sleep for four hours a night, but I think that was a mistake. Another power-crazed demon, Donald Trump. <laughs> um, how much does he sleep? Judging by the amount that he tweets in the wee hours, I would say not a good sleeper. That is correct. Can you can you guess how, how much that guy sleeps? Mm, three hours, maybe. He's a three-hour man. If he doubled how that... How did I know? ...or tripled that... <laughs> he is not a good advertisement for lack of yeah, sleep. Yeah, there would be fewer hours in the day for him to start a nuclear war if he, was, if he slept more. Well, so he might um, not be quite so impulsive. OK, now these two are slightly different questions. These are more like rarefied sleepers rather than good or bad sleepers. Michael Phelps, greatest swimmer of all time... What's weird about his sleeping? What's weird about it? Does he sleep in two shifts? No, he sleeps... Upside down? No, he sleeps at the equivalent of 9,000 feet above sea level. Mm. He's got no oxygen in his room, so that his blood... That sounds like cheating to me. Yeah, it's part of his training. It's not cheating, but it sounds a little bit dodgy. And finally, Tom Cruise. Well, we all know Tom Cruise is... I was going to say crazy. I don't want to be libelous. We all know Tom Cruise is a great actor. <laughs> Tom Cruise, I am going to say, probably has a lot on his mind, so I don't think he sleeps very well. However, he's got Scientology on his side, so maybe he's a brilliant sleeper. I don't know exactly how many hours Tom Cruise gets, but I do know that he sleeps in a snoratorium. He's not only, like, the greatest Scientologist in the world, he's widely considered to be the world's worst snorer. He has to sleep. <laughs> he has to sleep in a sort of sound-proofed room called a snoratorium because he is the world's worst snorer. So that concludes the quiz. You didn't get any points for Michael Phelps or Tom Cruise. If I just quickly add them up, your total score is 7.5 out of a possible 15, which is 50%. <laughs> <laughs> Great score. I'm very proud of that. To find out more about sleep, I put our questions and worries to Matthew Walker, a professor of neuroscience and psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, and he's also the director of the Centre for Human Sleep Science. And he recently published the book, Why We Sleep. So, Matt, you've called widespread sleep deprivation an epidemic, What exactly are the effects of this on us that we're seeing? Well, firstly, we know that every disease that is killing us in the developed world has significant links to insufficient sleep. And that ranges from Alzheimer's disease to cancer, which are the two most feared diseases in first world nations. 
but it also goes beyond those two. Uh, we know there are links between diabetes, cardiovascular disease, obesity, stroke, and perhaps most recently, even suicide. So I think the first take-home message there is that the decimation of sleep throughout the developed world seems to be having a catastrophic impact on our health and our wellness. I also think it's having a marked impact on the education and development of our children. We know that children nowadays are sleeping on average two hours less than they were a century ago. And do you think I would be better at my job if I was getting more sleep? Are many of us essentially kind of underperforming? We are underperforming when we are underslept in our job. First, we know that underslept employees will select less challenging work problems. We also know that they will create fewer solutions to work problems and fewer novel solutions in particular. We also know that employees exert less effort when working in groups if they haven't had enough sleep. We also know, interestingly, that underslept employees are more likely to lie and engage in deviant behavior. This doesn't just remain within the level of employees, it goes all the way up the business chain to leaders themselves. The more or less a business leader has slept from one night to the next, the more or less charismatic employees will rate that business leader. And then the final aspect, of course, that costs companies greatly when it comes to a lack of sleep is sick days and disability and the healthcare costs that come by way of insufficient sleep. And is insufficient sleep mostly kind of stress related or is there, is it in any way kind of genetic? Could you just be sort of naturally from a family of good sleepers? Well, we know that insomnia is somewhere between 30 to 40 percent heritable. But that means that somewhere between 60 to 70 percent of our sleeping problems are coming elsewhere, not from our genes. And we now know that the chronic sleep loss epidemic that is impacting developed nations is actually caused by a number of factors. Firstly, we know that commute times are longer because people are living further away from their place of work. We also know that work hours have elongated as well. It's also psychological too. We know that levels of anxiety and anxiety disorders are at some of the highest rates that we've ever seen. That is a major problem when it comes to sleep. You know, constantly during the day we are on reception. But now in modernity, it's only when our head hits the pillow that we actually go into reflection. People have concerns about their job, they have concerns about their finances and their emotional relationships. So those things are having a deleterious impact on our sleep. We also know that there are other factors, environmental factors. We get bathed with too much artificial light at night. We are a dark, deprived society. And we need darkness to have a hormone rise within the brain at night called melatonin, which allows the healthy timing of sleep. And we're not getting enough darkness. We also know that alcohol and caffeine are problems with sleep as well. Caffeine, of course, keeps us awake. It is a stimulant. Caffeine is the second most traded commodity on the surface of the planet after oil, which I think tells us everything about our chronic state of sleep deprivation. Hmm. What's interesting, however, is that even if you can fall asleep after having an espresso with dinner, the depth of the deep sleep that you have is not as deep 
compared to when you are not drinking caffeine with dinner. So I think many people underestimate the impact of caffeine. They wake up the next morning, they feel unrefreshed, they don't remember waking up, and they don't remember having a hard time falling asleep. But it's because of that lack of deep sleep. And therefore, the next morning, they have to have two cups of coffee rather than one, and so creates a vicious cycle of dependency with caffeine. Alcohol is perhaps the most misunderstood of all substances with sleep. Firstly, people think that a nightcap helps them fall asleep. That's not true. Alcohol is a class of drugs that we call the sedatives, and sedation is not sleep. So what you're doing is simply knocking the cortex out within the brain. You're losing consciousness quickly, but you're not falling into naturalistic sleep with alcohol. It will fragment your sleep so that you will wake up many times throughout the night. But those awakenings tend to be so brief that you don't imprint them to memory so that you wake up the next morning, you feel unrefreshed, but you don't realize that it was the alcohol waking you up throughout the night. These are the factors that collectively we think are preventing most of us from sleeping in the modern world. If you look across the century, back in 1942, the average American adult was sleeping 7.9 hours. Now that number is down to six hours and 31 minutes in the US. And just finally, could I train myself to sleep like a log? I don't think of myself as being a very good sleeper, but is this something I could work on? There are things that you can do, and we know this from the insomnia literature. There is a a psychological treatment called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, and it has a variety of principles that can take an individual who is struggling with sleep, and it can really help them, and the improvements are large. They are just as significant as sleeping pills in, in the short term, but unlike sleeping pills, which is fantastic, When you stop working with a therapist after several weeks, you continue to receive those sleep benefits. Your your sleep remains stable and good. Whereas with sleeping pills, when you stop using them, not only do you tend to go back to the bad sleep that you were having before, it usually becomes worse. It's called rebound insomnia. So there are certainly therapeutic non-drug avenues that people should look for if they're struggling with sleep, and they are scientifically and clinically proven to be very efficacious. So we have sleep guru Harriet Fitch-Little in the studio. Harriet, how did you sleep last night? I slept very well, Al, thank you. Um, (laughs) How did you sleep? Grizz, how did you sleep? I slept fine. No, not brilliantly. I got enough sleep. Although Matthew would probably say I didn't get enough sleep. (laughs) Back to you, Harriet. What time did he go? To, did he turn in last night? I didn't realise I was going to be quizzed over my personal life in the studio well, but I would say I went to sleep at about midnight. And you woke up bright and early for the podcast? I did, about seven, so that's probably not enough, is it? Uh-uh. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, there are worse sleepers probably in the studio. Did you feel refreshed when you woke up? I'd say I felt refreshed because I was so excited to be here. I was really worried actually when I started writing about sleep that the research was going to drive me absolutely 
mad because, you know, as we heard a bit of in your conversation with Matthew, once you do start thinking about it, you get obsessed by everything. I mean, there's almost as much research to show that sleeping too much is bad for you as that is that sleeping too little is bad for you. So it's quite terrifying the amount of things you have to do to get it right. I think Matthew would say that there's more research to say it's bad for you. But yeah, you're right. Sleeping too much is def- definitely not great. I remember my mum, when I was a teenager, telling me, you're sleeping way too much. This is really bad. You get up now, pulling the duvet oh, off. But teenagers have to sleep, don't they? They have to because you're, you're going through your life changes. Is that not true? I think that's true. I think some sleep experts would say that school should start a lot later because teenagers really do need to sleep longer in the mornings. Okay, well, let's get on to the the serious business. Why are we obsessed with sleep? (laughs) Well, it all goes back to the Industrial Revolution, and that really is the case. I mean, before that, we didn't really think about sleep. We thought about dreams. We thought about sleeplessness in the context of lovesickness or illness. But sleep itself wasn't a huge concern because basically most people were getting enough of it, even if you were doing something backbreaking and manual, there luckily wasn't a huge amount you could do once the light of day faded. Come the revolution, suddenly sleep becomes pushed into this eight-hour window while we're waking up by the bell. So this is the industrial revolution for kind of factory workers. Exactly. Yeah. So suddenly people only really have this very short amount of time in which to sleep and eight hours, I think, is about what we should be getting but the actual the idea of eight hours as you know something that we push for actually came out of workers rights protests in the early 19th century there was this popular slogan which was uh, eight hours to work eight hours to rest eight hours for what we will I think probably what they were more interested in was the eight hours for what we will but eight hours sleep kind of was solidified then as something to aim for and I think before that we've been asleep about that amount. So the rot sets in um, <laughs> in during the Industrial Revolution and it keeps rotting until 2017 uh, where we're now completely fixated to the point that no self-respecting, hard-working person will ever confess that they sleep like a log. Is that true? That's not entirely true, is it? I mean, over the last century, but it's certainly accelerating, people are increasingly obsessed with sleep as a moral phenomenon as an economic phenomenon so you were speaking about famous insomniacs earlier and you know lots of people celebrate how little sleep they get but also more recently we've seen people celebrating how much sleep they get and Ariana Huffington is really the woman leading that charge again sleep is seen as a means to productivity she speaks a lot about the need to sleep so you'll be better at work In 2007, Arianna Huffington, who was kind of overachieving, classic sleep-deprived professional, she collapsed at her desk, I think, cut her cheek open and awoke in a pool of her own blood. And it was then that she decided she wasn't getting enough sleep and became a sort of sleep evangelist. There are many, like Arianna Huffington, CEOs who boast about how much sleep they get. There are also lots who boast about how little still the kind of Thatcher idea of getting very little sleep and still doing well. That's a strand that it's got a huge history, hasn't it? I mean, that goes back to Edison when he invented the light bulb. He became incredibly puritanical, moralising about people who slept too much. He said that if you slept for eight hours a night, 
you know, this new standard, you were never fully awake or fully asleep. You were just at different degrees of dozing throughout the day. And so it's I kind think, of laziness. It's about laziness. Yeah, it's it's a Puritan work ethic, isn't it? You know, you work hard to the point of exhaustion, collapse into bed at the end of the day and do the same thing again the next day. <laughs> but you've written about Edison having some of his most creative thoughts between waking and sleeping. So we're missing out, no? It's a contradiction, absolutely, that Edison thought that. But this is something that sleep historians really bring to the table in this discussion, which is that before we were sleeping in this very regimented way, you know, where we fall asleep at the right time with perhaps sleep aids helping us, we wake up to the sound of our alarm clock. Lots of people thought that we were actually sleeping in a very broken way. There's a historian, Robert E. Kirch, who thinks that we were actually probably sleeping for two periods in the night and in the middle of it would kind of wake up, would maybe have sex, would maybe have a bit of a think, would maybe chat to whoever was around. It's a slightly romantic so what notion. Time, what time would this be? This, sort of, this About midnight, the witching hour. Oh, right. So then you'd, we'd all go to bed at, what, eight o'clock? And Eight, then wake nine. Up when it got dark. Wake yeah. up at midnight and then and go and have sex. Sounds great, doesn't it? <laughs> Sounds okay. Because yeah. midnight well, and was then, And then go midnight. back to bed at what? Sort of like one o'clock? After about an hour, go back to bed again. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds very civilised. Maybe we should go back to that. It does, and I wonder if the reason that's become so widely publicised as a notion is because it is such a nice one. I think we really, we feel like those, uh, those lovely reflective moments of being squeezed out of everyday mm. life. There are researchers who disagree with what E. Kirch has written and said that there are lots of explanations for these references to first sleep and second sleep, which is what he bases his research off. But I think the general agreement is that yes we used to sleep in a way that was far less regimented so we had far more of these lovely thoughtful moments when you're drifting in and out of sleep which as you'll both know is a very nice but increasingly rare way to spend a morning or an evening and increasingly fraught in my experience but I mean I sleep solidly for the first four hours and then almost not at all well, that could possibly be what E. Kirk was picking up on in the historical text that he read in terms of references to first and second sleep. Maybe you're experiencing so the period normal. in the middle. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe when you it. wake up after three hours. Maybe my most of my day is spent <laughs> in that Sign middle the period. Second sleep. So I'm not having, maybe I'm not having as much sex as he had. Um, okay, so do you think then... That with all of this research, with the two schools of thought that Grizz has mentioned between the you know, the macho, I never sleep, mm. Edison, a crowd, and the Ariana Huffington sleep evangelist, do you think that maybe it's gone all a bit over the top and the amount of things that you can buy, sleep apps, to ensure that you sleep more? A, is that just completely out of proportion? And B, do you think it's actually counterproductive? That if, you, if you're if you spending that amount of money, if you're thinking that much about it, the chances are you're not going to be able to sleep. Well, I think it is slightly telling, isn't it, that the main proponent of clean sleep on sleep hygiene is Gwyneth Paltrow, who is... Just quickly, because not everyone will have heard of clean sleep. What is clean sleep? Clean sleep is basically a quite sensible notion. It's everything related to sleeping for the right amount of time and sleeping in good conditions, so not at the middle of the party with the lights on. Okay. Isn't it also something about not having technology and kind of blue light right before bed yeah, or not having your phone by your pillow? Everything that contributes to the quality of our sleep, but I... You know, is drunk I, sleep clean sleep? <laughs> it's definitely it is not. absolutely not. Sleep. We're not endorse that. <laughs> okay. 
But I think what's happened is that clean sleep is essentially like clean eating. You've taken something that is really quite sensible, a set of uh, ideas for how to do something well in, in a healthy way. Then you've added all these rules, all this expense, all this anxiety and to it. Made it quite a kind of fetish almost. I think fetish is a really good word. And on Gwyneth Paltrow's site, Goop, among the many other things you've been able to buy at various points, there's a copper-infused pillow. I can't remember what it's meant to do, but but something good. <laughs> it's amazing the products you could buy. I was looking up some of these things last night. There's a company called Sleep Number, and they've recently, I think this year, introduced this thing called the 360 Smart Bed. Let me tell you some of the features that it has. So it has an automatic feet warmer. That sounds quite nice. This sounds slightly more scary. It tilts upwards when someone starts to snore to clear their airways. They'll be That's kicked good. out of bed like <laughs> yeah. Wallace and Gromit on the wrong dresses. <laughs> exactly, I think it's like that. It knows when you're on the lightest phase of your sleep cycle and then it wakes you up. An alarm starts going, that I guess, within the bed. I know, at, at the point, so there are these smart alarms that instead of just saying, I'm going to wake you up at 7am, no matter what your brain is doing at that point. They kind of monitor you, and when you're at your lightest phase, it will wake you up then, so so you feel better, apparently. A lot of how tired you feel is to do with the point at which you wake up within your cycle. So if you were in this deep, deep, dreamless sleep, as Matthew was saying, you feel pretty awful if you wake, if someone kind of wraps you on the the shoulder and wakes you up at that point. Do we think that sleep gimmicks or sleep tools that you've just mentioned are, in fact, part of some massive industry con. Well, it might surprise you, Al, to hear that despite being the ambassador for all forms of cynicism normally, I don't actually think they are. I think if you look at the things that sleep apps and sleep tech are trying to do, it's all pretty sensible. It's basically trying to encourage you to sleep in a way that's less disturbed, more comfortable. It's monitoring you more carefully. These things are going to have some positive benefits. I would imagine they'd be small. They don't address the fundamental problem that I think our relationship with the way we sleep, as Matthew was mentioning, is very troubled. But no, they're basically doing what they say on the tin. And if you've got, how much is that smart bed? I think it's about $4,500. If you've got that amount of money to spend on a bed that will move your partner when they're snoring, (laughs) great, go for it. Okay, but this surely is still an industry that is essentially preying on one of the great paranoias of our age. And also that's saying, you know, if you can afford this stuff, you can sleep better and therefore sleep becomes the preserve of the wealthy, which I think is really worrying. That is really worrying. When I was researching sleep, the most terrifying thing I read, and it really did keep me awake at night, was a book by Jonathan Creary, who's a left-wing social critic. And it's called 24-7, Late Capitalism and the Ends of Sleep. And he basically forecasts a world in which sleep is a luxury. So he looks to research in the US military to develop the seven-day soldier ongoing. They want a soldier who won't have to sleep for seven days thanks to a cocktail of various drugs. And he points out, and I think very fairly, that once we have the ability to do that, it will trickle down into everyday life as all what military... Could go wrong? <laughs> it's a lovely idea, isn't it? The 24-7 US soldier. It's utterly terrifying. Not just the soldiers, but 
the wider point that he makes is that soon sleep is going to become an option in the same way that leisure time, for example, is now an unaffordable option for many people. He thinks that once you've got the option of working more or spending eight hours, you know, blacked out, essentially, people are going to choose the work. And so soon sleep really will be something that only the very wealthy can afford. And I think that is utterly terrifying. But the thing is, so much of our consumer economy is based on this idea that you can have what you want when you want it, like next day delivery, coming out of a club at 6am and an Uber being right there for you. All of this stuff means there's a whole economy based on people not sleeping at night time. And we know from what Matthew said that night shifts are bad for you. And a lot of the people who work night shifts are you know, people without money who don't have a choice, basically. Exactly. And if you look at the industries where people are wealthy but they're having to work long hours you'll see companies doing things to try and mitigate for that so you've got these sleep pods in you know all the offices in the city there's actually an insurance group i read about called aetna i think i'm pronouncing that right who pays its staff to sleep and it's a total trust exercise that the staff record how, how much they've slept the night before how many hours and it pays them 25 dollars for every 20 nights sleep they they have a, of seven hours or more and so they can get up to $300 a year as a kind of incentive for sleeping because this this company recognises that badly slept staff is kind of terrible for productivity. I would never get that. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be deprived. You could be, lie and get it. <laughs> and really the workers are being ripped off because I think Huffington, she quotes, I think it's over $2,000 per year per worker is lost due to sleep deprivation. Yeah, so if they're only problem. getting 300 of that back... <laughs> So the future of sleep is no sleep. I don't even want to think about that being a possibility. And no, I think, as Matthew said, the amount of biological functions you'd have to reckon with simulating in order for that to be the case. No, I don't think that is the future. The only slightly optimistic future that I can see is for sleep to no longer be considered a personal problem and the epidemic of the lack of sleep to be considered a personal problem and for it to be considered a societal one which is really what it is it's not you Grizz or you Al who's not getting enough sleep it's the way that we work and the way that we live and not my fault it's not your fault <laughs> that's what I'm here to tell you okay well on that note thank you very much for coming in Harriet So, Grizz, if someone has been living as a hermit in a cave for the past 20 years, mm -hmm. eating juniper berries, and therefore, through no fault of their own, have not heard of Chris Krause, who is Chris Krause? Well, Al, I would say to that hermit, firstly, thanks for listening. You're welcome. Secondly, you know, don't worry if you haven't heard of Chris Krause, because until fairly recently, it was very much a sort of underground cult hit. That is to say, I Love Dick, her most famous book, was published in 1997, 20 years ago. But in the years between 1997 and 2006, when it was reissued, it sold barely any copies at all. It was, I think it sold about 100 copies a year. So this is very sort of a niche art niche. world. That's cult. That's the definition of a cult book. Yes. You just sell 100 copies a year. Then you've made it, haven't you? In the in the cult in the cult world, <laughs> the you, cult, you are the, cult. The market of yeah, cult books. But since then, she she's sort of more than cult now. I would say Lena Dunham, 
the writer uh, star of Girls, the TV show, gave a copy of I Love Dick to the singer Lord, who Instagrammed its quite distinctive cover, and that went viral. This year, Jill Soloway, who made the TV show Transparent, made us a TV show called I Love Dick, a sort of adaptation of the book, which was amazing, starring Kevin Bacon and Catherine Hahn. And that, I think, got the book a whole new audience of people okay. on Amazon. But why do you love I Love Dick so much? So I Love Dick is a book about 39-year-old filmmaker slash writer called Chris Krause. It's very heavily autobiographical, although it's not an autobiography. And this, I think, probably chimes with with other people we've had on the podcast. Amit Chowdhury springs to mind. Teju Cole, I think, as well. There are more of these people. as well, I think. Yeah, this kind of auto-fiction, autobiographical strain, exactly. There's Knausgaard, Holly McNish. Well, Holly McNish... Everyone. (laughs) You can't come on the podcast unless you've written a kind of non-memoir about yourself. Yeah, it is a theme of the podcast. However, Holly McNish aside, I would say that a lot of the people who are doing this thing called auto-fiction, blurring of of kind of real life and fictional life, are men. And what Chris Krause is doing is very specifically female and kind of rejoicing in female sexuality, female self-expression. It's all about sort of sexual politics and erotic obsession, power, lust. It's quite a funny story. It's um, the Chris Krause in the novel moves to a sort of small town in Texas with her husband. It's a slightly kind of, it's not loveless, it's a sort of sexless marriage. She develops this huge kind of uncontrollable crush on one of the academics at this institute where her academic husband is going to give some lectures. This is played by Kevin Bacon in the TV show. So he is Dick. And the the real life guy that it's based on was very upset, was he not? The real life guy was very upset. He wrote Chris Krause several cease and desist letters, Mm -hmm. which I think she ignored. And she actually asked him if he'd like to write the introduction to the book. And he declined. But I quite liked that. She wasn't having any of it. So he's called Dick Hebditch. He was a cultural theorist, real life guy. Have you just outed him? Or is that... No, no, no. We all know that. We, We know that. We know that. The only thing that Chris Krause didn't change was his name because she, she needed the name for the title of the book. But everything else was changed. So the Chris Krause of the book and her husband write this dick, lots of love letters. But they're sort of love letters that are quite wide-ranging. They talk about books that she's reading or ideas that she has for art projects or the politics of the time. So, so they're not just about sex. So this cult book, which is no longer cult, which is now mainstream has been described by one critic as the most important book about men and women written in the last century. That's a pretty big deal, isn't it? I mean, to have written the most important book about... Basically, that means the most important book about the human race. That means it's the most important book, doesn't it, in the last century? I don't think it's the most important book written in the last century. However, I do think this is a pretty unique take on kind of sexual politics... It's not even really about sex itself. It's about being obsessed with someone and sort of making that person into something that they're not and sort of loading that person with all of your own frustrations and desires and kind of hopes. And these might be professional as much as sexual. I mean, it's a lot about the fact that the woman in the novel is kind of financially dependent on her husband and she has this career that's as a filmmaker which is not really going anywhere there's lots of things that she wants to do and the powerful figure of dick symbolized is kind of everything is all this male power that she wishes she had 
but sort of doesn't have. It, it's not as simple as that, but but there's kind of quite interesting dynamics going on there. Okay. This book was published in 1997. Why has it had this resurgence? I think I Love Dick chimes with a lot of themes that we are interested in now. There's a new kind of feminism that has emerged in the past, say, five years. You know, in the 90s, I don't think people were writing about women and desire in this way, at least not in a mainstream sense. Obviously, there were people doing that. I think now, with the work of people like Amy Schumer, Lena Dunham, TV shows like Girls and Broad City, which are very kind of sex positive and also portraying women as very much flawed protagonists, real people, kind of comic anti-heroes, which I don't think really existed in the same way before I Love Dick. There were plenty of male anti-heroes that sort of littered all the way through the 20th century, but really funny, flawed female characters, quite few and far between. And I think now we're seeing them quite a lot. And perhaps Chris Krause in the book is one of those. She's sort of slightly shy and socially awkward. She's in some ways sort of asexual and then develops this completely uncontrollable crush. It's, it's a kind of awkward situation that she's in. And I think maybe people are, people are responding to that. Chris, when I was reading your book, I Love Dick, on the tube... I felt like the cover was eliciting some responses from people around me. Some of them looked slightly embarrassed. Some of the men were kind of slightly looking me up and down and thinking, and I wondered, do you think, um, is society really comfortable nowadays with this idea of of female sexuality? Do you think things have changed in the 20 years since you published the book? Not so much. (laughs) You know, people love to take photos of themselves, of their pets, whatever, with the book. And it's funny. I mean, it's funny to be sitting on a train with the the book cover open. It says, I love Dick, and it's whimsical. People have never had a problem with female sexuality as long as it's kind of heteronormative and the woman is young and attractive. No problem there. But... Bring it on. (laughs) But no, other forms of sexuality that are darker or more off the map of our expectations, I think people are still just as averse. I mean, the world is saturated with pornography and sexuality. I think in the U.S., the pornography industry grosses more money than all professional sports combined. And yet, this double standard persists about women expressing certain things about sexuality. Do you think that feminists have a different attitude today to pornography? You know, there's this idea of being sex positive and of pornography as possibly being empowering to women. What do you think about that? Well, certainly there's more pressure on women to talk that talk. Anyone who's not sex positive looks really conservative and clueless and just not in the mix at all. But do you think it's real? Yeah, but no. I mean, yeah. I mean, and this is something that Kathy Acker, whose biography I wrote recently, she addresses this a lot in her earlier work. And we're talking about now this is 40, almost 50 years ago in the aftermath of the great sexual revolution. Yes, women are expected to have sex all the time, and they were expected to be just like a kind of playboy idea of what a man is and not really think about a relationship, not think about intimacy, not think about a connection to another person. So 
in what way is this liberating for women? So do you think feminism has therefore like been watered down a bit or sort of commercialized? I mean, do you what do you think about the sort of sex positive feminism? Well, I mean, there's so many different feminisms now. You can hardly reduce it to one. I think it's it's been very important for people who are sex workers to destigmatize what they do and be very open about what they do. And if the rhetoric of sex positivity is part of that, then so be it. But I mean, usually once people get into it, they're conflicted. In 2008, I did a six-week tour of the U.S. with a roadshow called the Sex Workers Art Show Tour. I was like the writer in a van full of active sex workers. You know, they were still involved in sex work. Brilliant, brilliant people. But when push came to shove, they all had an ambivalence about what they were doing. Well, you mean, you mean the, the sex and, and women, there is still this question of exploitation? Of course it's exploitative. Other kinds of work are exploitative too. There's no doubt. There are benefits to doing sex work, but you can't deny that sex work is exploitative in a psychically different way than working in a shop, say. It's a trade-off. People who do sex work make that trade-off for as long as they can withstand it, for as long as it suits them. But I mean, to say that it's the most wonderful and positive experience, I don't really think we can say that of many forms of work in our culture. So this idea of the kind of flawed female character in fiction, this is now something that we're quite familiar with. But back in in 97, that was quite, you know, it was quite new, quite different. Can you say something about the character of Chris and what you were sort of trying to do with, with her? Yeah, you know, it didn't occur to me at the time that I was writing it. There's another writer who I was influenced a lot by. She's not very well known here. Her name is Anne Rauer. She was older than me. She had this really great way of kind of she was like a female William S. Burroughs. She would just drawl out the side of her mouth, and it was all wisecracks and very sardonic. And she wrote fiction, short stories. You know, her character in the book was always very self-deprecating. It was really, really funny. I mean, that's kind of Jewish humor. There's a tradition in the U.S. of self-deprecating Jewish humor. So it seemed totally natural to me to adopt that as a tone or kind of a character mask when I was writing the book. It didn't occur to me that people would think, oh, she hates herself. She has such a poor self-image. But I guess that that self-deprecating humour had been quite male previously. Yes, I know, but I was so naive that I didn't really think of it in terms of gender. I thought that anyone could adopt that. And so why do you think I Love Dick has resonated so strongly now? I mean, what was what's the difference between how it was received now and how it was received then? It was very polarizing when the book first came out. It's not that it wasn't read at all. It was read, but people loved it or hated it, attacked or defended. Now it's like the great unifier. You know, the readings that I give are like intergenerational love fests <laughs> among mostly women, but queer men, straight men. The book brings people together. The phenomenon of the book has created a community of people that goes way beyond the book or anything I ever did. And why do you think that's happened right now? Or a few years ago? I don't know. I mean, it started in 06 when people started blogging about the book and the bloggers had a lot of followers and their followers told their followers and things can move very, very quickly now on social media. But another reason is that anything that offers like a chance for people to bond and to create a sense of community is really welcome. And what does Dick represent in the book? Ah, well... <laughs> 
<laughs> Dick is like the great white whale, right? <laughs> Dick is all patriarchal power. Dick is pouvoir, savoir, power, and knowledge. Dick is the world of like alternative underground cowboy culture. Dick is the culture that the character Chris feels that she's been excluded from up until that point. I feel like there's something about her wanting to have a bit of that male power, that like power that comes from having a penis, basically. Yes. And in that particular corner of the art world, you know, the avant-garde art world, Suzanne Moore wrote a piece about this the other day in relation to the Kathy Agar book, very eloquent, pointing out that the misogyny in that particular corner of the art world, you know, underground avant-garde, was so virulent and so much more extreme than other avenues of life. I mean, women in the legal profession women in business, maybe not as much as women in underground culture. It was so paradoxical and hypocritical. I wanted to ask you about your your Kathy Acker biography. So you say quite early on in this sort of funny turn of phrase that it may or may not be a biography. I mean, what do you what do you see it as? Well, I mean, when I wrote that piece, I literally didn't know if I was writing a biography. I started out by writing that essay. And at first I thought, well, maybe I'm just going to write a series of essays and I won't call it a biography. But in the end, I did. I set out to do all of that work that a biography does. But I still feel that the book is written more like a long essay or like a novel than like a traditional biography. It's also not a traditional biography because your kind of relationship with the person is different. Can you tell me about sort of what what drew you to her? I mean, I know that you didn't necessarily know each other, but you sort of circled around each other a bit in, in life. Is that right? Yeah, well, I didn't know Kathy. We weren't friends. But I came to New York at a time when she was very famous and well-established, and I started moving around the edges of the crowd that she moved in. I saw the same art shows, the same movies. We read the same books. Eventually, I met some of the people and became involved with some of the same people that she'd been involved with. It was a much smaller world at that time. So I was in the same rooms. I breathed some of the same air. And I felt like I understood that culture very well. And I've gotten to know some of the people that she knew much better, actually, in the last 20 years since she's died. And I've become more active professionally. And what was that scene like? I mean, was it as glamorous in kind of the East Village and things as we think of it now? Or was actually, you know, was life quite hard? And No, I mean, it was really as banal as life is now. <laughs> One of the reasons I wanted to work on the book was to try and demythologize that era. I don't know why people keep positing that as, you know, like the last avant-garde. I guess it's this romance that we have with the pre-digital. In fact, those scenes were very exclusionary and very snobby. Exile was much more permanent. If you were out, you were out. There was no way back in. One thing that I like much better about the present is it's more porous and more fluid. And there seem to be more ways that people can kind of creep into the culture. I mean, whether it's as important or whether it means as much as it did then, that's another question. But at least things are more open. And can you describe Kathy Acker for people who might not have heard of her? Because I don't feel like she's as famous, especially in the UK, as, you know, she might be. She was very small. She was about five feet two, and she didn't weigh much, and she had big, wide eyes like an anime doll. (laughs) Um, She had a strong New York accent. 
She was incredibly erudite. She pursued interests in bodybuilding, in tattooing, in motorcycle riding. She also translated classical texts, taught Latin at one point. She encompassed so many different worlds and so many interests. As Gary Pulsifer, the late Gary Pulsifer, the publisher, said, Kathy had this rare ability to bring the world into herself. And that comes through her writing. And I wonder also whether she slightly kind of premeditated the internet age in this way that she sort of just grabbed things from different places and different people's writings and kind of brought them together. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to look at it. She always said that her books didn't need to be read in chronological order, that you could open them and move around, that it was episodic, like bits composed here and there. And that's actually like, I can think of three or four novels that have come out in the last several years that do exactly that, that use quotations from email, from social media, from blog posts, etc., where you can skip around like that. So this change in the quality of attention and our interest in continuous narrative, she really provisioned that. And just finally, could you tell me about the experience of writing a biography of somebody like this? And did you kind of get quite deep into her to the extent that you felt like you knew her through writing this book? Absolutely. I mean, you can't write a book like that without getting very close to the person, without... At some points, I thought, God, I'm becoming an acarologist. Just this ever going to stop? I know everything about this person. In the end, of course, you know nothing. And that's partly what I meant when I said it may or may not be a biography. In the end, you really only know what you synthesize from the things that you gathered. But do you think she's particularly unknowable or just that the act of writing a biography is kind of an, an impossible thing? Yeah, I mean, that's also why it's not a traditional biography. A traditional biography pretends that they are giving you the last word on the person, that they've summed up the life, that they understand it, here it is. I've always felt that a life is unsummable, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, we're all kind of fictional creations of ourselves anyway. So you can only render your own version of a person, just like everyone has their own versions of events. Chris Krauss, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Before we go, we said a very sad farewell to Fats Domino this week. Here he is singing his peerless Blueberry Hill. That's it for this week. Chris Krauss's books, I Love Dick and After Kathy Acker, can be found in any decent bookshop. As can Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep. Next week, we'll be discussing the hit podcast, Dirty John, and the sinister appeal of true crime. And Al will chat to the comedian, Roisin Connerty, star of the hilarious sitcom, Game Face. What's the key to a good night's sleep? Share your tips with Grizz and me, both insomniacs at facebook.com slash everything else podcast or email us at everything else at ft.com 
please leave us a review or a rating on iTunes. It really helps other people discover the podcasts and boosts us in the charts. You can subscribe on any podcast app and listen online at ft.com slash everything else. Our podcast is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been Grizz and Al. And our music is composed and produced by Fatum. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.